Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday! Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I got to tell you something. I see a pattern here. The Democrats are trying to figure out every possible way they have of letting criminals get away with being criminals. In other words, the Democrats want to make crime pay. I mean, the Democrat politicians have been doing that for some time. But now they're not satisfied with defunding the police and backing Antifa and BLM and all that nonsense. They're not satisfied with George Soros replacing prosecutors with people who get elected as DA or prosecutor, and then they don't prosecute criminals. They're not happy enough with judges who decide to give either light sentences or no sentences for crime. Now they want to tell the police, stop chasing the criminals and lance larusso joins me now who's founder of the blue line lawyer institute he's a former cop and the author of books when cops kill and uh, blue news the proceeds of which go to police charities how you doing lance i'm doing well thanks for having me i'm glad to have you on the show does it make any sense there's a think tank that is saying police should be told stop chasing criminals You know, it's an interesting thing that we call that a think tank. I I just don't know what they're thinking. Um, And and maybe it's a presumption to say that they are. Uh, This has been bantered around for years. And believe it or not, most of the time it comes from insurance companies who are tired of fixing police cars um, or complaining that the subject who's running, who's usually a felon, has run into an innocent person and blaming the police for that action. The understanding and most law enforcement agencies have adapted their policies especially in more populated areas that they don't chase for traffic tickets they don't chase for minor traffic violations like stop signs but they have criteria that say number one what they will chase for number two what conditions will end a chase like congested traffic school zones things like that but if you have a blanket policy that says you will not chase you will have people number one running from police more often, and we've seen that. And number two, they will hit what are called chase speeds. So you'll be behind someone who's breaking into cars or an armed robber or whatever, and if they know the jurisdiction doesn't have a chase policy, they will hit the gas and drive as recklessly as they can to keep the police from chasing them. We've seen that. I've seen videos where they're waving at cops as they hit the gas, knowing that jurisdiction won't chase. And by the way, Lance, I make my home in Washington State, there was a state law passed a couple of years ago. They've modified it to a minor degree, but essentially said you can't chase. And we've actually had 911 recordings of criminals who will say to the girlfriend in the car, call 911 and tell them these officers are not allowed to chase me under the new policy. The criminals know the policy. Of course they do. Of course they do. We've actually seen situations where when the folks are caught, in another jurisdiction, they will be on jail calls discussing the fact that they knew they weren't going to be caught in the jurisdiction they ran from. I mean, this is not a secret. And, you know, and recently I was having a conversation with someone about this. And you add to the fact that chances are the person who is running from the police after a felony crime is probably high or drunk. And what the, the public, you know, is told by either movies or the media 
is that people who commit crimes, they're, you know, they're just having a bad day. They did something wrong. They just made a misstep. Overwhelmingly, the people who are committing crimes are under the influence of alcohol and drugs. And now what you're telling them is you just need to run or telling the police if they run, just don't chase them. And the bottom line is police are supposed to catch criminals. It's a very basic part of our criminal justice system. If you don't ever catch anyone and evidence gets away, then you don't have prosecutions. And if you don't have prosecutions, you don't put anybody behind jail. There's no consequence and the crimes go on. So how do we because I understand the concern about public safety. And to me, what you just what you suggested a moment ago, where you say, let's let the individual agencies decide based on a huge amount of experience. These are the times we chase. These are the times we don't. And then deliberately don't tell the public or the bad guys what the criteria are. I mean, to me. It made as little sense as Obama telling folks in, uh, I think, Fallujah, why we're going to go in and retake Fallujah in three months. <laughs> he gets all the bad guys three months to, you know, rearrange their affairs uh, before we come in. Why in the world would we let the bad guys know what the specific criteria are rather than simply saying we're not going to tell you when we're going to chase and when we're not? And sometimes we will and sometimes we won't. That makes a lot more sense than having a bunch of folks in the legislature or the Congress decide when it happens, doesn't it? Oh, it's, of course it does. And par- it's part of a problem of letting people decide policy and law based on emotion and also allowing people that don't have a clue as to what they're doing dictate police policy. You know, for instance, for years, people said, well, you know, if you if you chase, uh, you know, the, the, if you wreck the person intentionally, you could injure someone. Well, the only person you're going to injure if things are done correctly with the precision intervention technique, it's a pit maneuver is what people yeah. are used to. If you do that rapidly and you do that under appropriate circumstances, the car spins out, you block the car in. You may be in a foot chase, but you're not in a car chase. Yet we have people complaining, well, you're wrecking all these police cars, or it looks so violent to stop a car that way. It does. It Being pitched and rolled in that car is like going to Six Flags without a ticket. <laughs> but the bottom line is the police are in control of the pursuit, and they stop it very quickly. And that's really what it comes down to is the folks who have said, and it's not everyone, it's by far not the general public. It's the people that are blaming the police for everything. And then look at our campuses now that are having these violent protests and students being threatened. Are they calling politicians? Are they calling policymakers to come protect students on campus? No, they're calling the police. Well, well, can you come on the campus? We need your help. Shocking. I'm talking to Lance LaRusso. His books are called When Cops Kill and Blue News. The book's uh, proceeds, by the way, go to police charities. So I'm just worried that I, I, Lance, I've had, and I think I've told you the the reaction I had when they said defund the police. I said, that's stupid. That's never going to happen. And of course, I was completely wrong. And the politicians went crazy places with that. Do we run the same risk here that the politicians will say, well, Police chases are, uh, you know, they're bad for criminals and potentially somebody can get hurt. Let's just go ahead and tell the police not to do it. They've been banned in a lot of states. They've been banned in states. They've been banned in communities. They've been banned for certain counties or certain municipalities. So this is not something new. It's just the fact that people are talking about doing it on a wholesale basis. And the, the concern that I have is they're not listening to the professionals And as I gave the example, okay, so you don't want law enforcement to chase a DUI driver. Does that mean you don't want law enforcement to chase the armed robber who just killed somebody in a a bank? Or do they get a pass, too? 
And, well, you know, of course not. Well, stop making blanket policies and start trusting. I know this is crazy, Lars. Let's start trusting the discretion and the training of the people that we sent and turned into professional law enforcement officers. I know that's I'm a crazy all, idea. I'm all for that. Look, Lance, my mom was killed by a drunk driver. As far as I'm concerned, a drunk driver is just a felony and a homicide, a vehicular homicide waiting to happen. That's Lance LaRusso, founder of the Blue Line Lawyer Institute, and we always appreciate his insights into issues like that. We'll get to your phone calls and emails coming up. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show, honestly provocative talk for America. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Investment in Talk Radio, and it's free. Lars Larson, you're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm glad to get to your calls, and we'll do that in just a moment. First, I have to welcome back my friend Rabbi Yaakov Menken, who is managing director of the Coalition for Jewish Values, the largest rabbinic public policy organization in America. Rabbi, good to have you back. And it's good to be back. Thanks so much. You betcha. Tell me what's going on at New York's Yeshiva University and being effectively forced to back up something that doesn't fit with the faith values of that university. Well, a group of students applied to the university to create YU Pride Alliance, a LGBTQ club, as a student organization. And the yeshiva, in consultation with its rabbinic leaders, because it is a religious Jewish institution, uh, said, no, we can't have that. And the students filed suit saying, well, it's a secular university. You've got to follow the secular values of America. And the judge, who just happens to be a Jewish lesbian woman who herself graduated from a Jewish college and therefore really knows how these uh, colleges operate and their Jewish standards, sided with the Pride Alliance and said you've got to immediately have this this uh, group certified as a student organization. So Yeshiva University has filed for emergency stays with both the uh, New York Supreme Court and the Supreme Court of the United States, hoping one or the other will say we've got to hold this up. See, Rabbi, this is the thing I don't get. Because about a dozen years ago, there was a pair of lesbians with a child who took the child to a, a Catholic uh, K-12 school, but a private Catholic uh, K-12 school, and said, we want our daughter to go here. And they said, well, you know, your, your beliefs don't match with our beliefs. And I've always wondered not whether or not you can go to the courts and get the courts to order any crazy thing they want to order, because they do sometimes order some crazy things, but... Why would somebody whose own personal beliefs don't square with the religious beliefs of an institution want their child to be in an institution whose very belief structure 
doesn't match their own. I mean, it'd be like me going out and becoming a member of the ACLU these days because the American Crooks and Lawyers Union doesn't stand up for civil rights um, and, and, and supports many of the things that I thoroughly disagree with. So why would I, you know, it's, it's, it's I guess, a turn on the old Groucho Marx joke. Uh, I'd never want to be a member of a club that would take me as a member. Why would you want to be a member of a club or an organization or any kind of private entity whose beliefs are contrary to your own? Well, this is the problem with these students in, in this particular case and going to Yeshiva University. Which, I mean, of course, it's going to impact uh, religious universities of all faiths and all kinds. Uh, they, they certainly knew what Yeshiva University, it's right in the name. They knew what it stood for when they walked through the door. Right. So one of two things is clearly true. Either the entire narrative that we've been hearing about LGBTQ is innate and irreversible, and you can't because they all grew up during an era where you know everybody knew about you, you can be this way and you can choose your your venue and you can choose your gender and you can choose everything. So they went into yeshiva and they claim so this is much more malleable than they're claiming because obviously they didn't feel this way before they got to the university even though they went through puberty and all that and knew which way they supposedly went. Or the alternative is they went to Yeshiva University knowing exactly what it stands for and went in there intending to force it to change. Yep. There should be no refuge for a religious Jewish student who wants to go to a religious Jewish university. That There should be no such thing as a university that operates by religious standards. Well, and, and that's it. They want to bully an institution into changing to conform. And since government can't do that, it's forbidden to do that by the Constitution, um, then, then, then you're going to get private actors to do it. I guess, Rabbi, the closest comparison I could come to is if I said, I'm going to pick the greenest, you know, tree hugger group I can think of. Sierra Club comes to mind, but maybe one that's more radical than that. And I'm going to get a bunch of my conservative friends to join this organization. And then we're going to force it to become an organization that advocates for drilling for oil and killing baby seals. I mean, it's why, why would we tolerate this kind of behavior from people who say, I, I, I'm free to make, have my own beliefs. And now I want to force my beliefs on people who don't agree with me. That seems so un-American. It is kind of like taking over a chapter of PETA and holding a barbecue. <laughs> there you go. That's that's the kind of, See, you came up with a great metaphor. Maybe I'll steal that one from you, Rabbi, if you don't mind. But this and this kind of because as far as I'm concerned, Rabbi, it's a big world. Uh, on my show, naysayers go to the head of the line. I want to hear from the people who disagree with me. It doesn't mean I'm going to be persuaded by them, but I want my audience to hear and I want them to hear how I respond to what might be sensible arguments. It doesn't mean I'm going to change the nature of the show, but it, it does mean I want the audience to hear both sides. But hearing both sides is one thing. Forcing organizations, which are groups, of, big groups of people, in this case, Yeshiva University, to say, you must tow the party line, and until you do, we're going to drag you through the courts, we're going to drag you through the mud, we'll try to cut off your funding, we'll try to get you canceled, uh, and then maybe at some point you'll, you'll finally just knuckle under. It, it really is about forced conformity. Do you, do you have a moment for another related example? Sure. Well, the reporter Taylor Lorenz at the Washington Post is now crowing about the fact 
that LGBTQ activists and a trans woman, I think, in, in England, have forced Kiwi Farms off the air because apparently Kiwi Farms is involved in a whole lot of bullying of LGBTQ activists. And, and I'm not in favor of bullying at all, so I don't, and I have no opinion because I never even saw the Kiwi Farms website when it was alive. But I do have to say, the tale of the Wrens is the same woman who doxed libs of TikTok yep. and pointed out that she was an Orthodox Jew, which is something that the woman herself had carefully kept to herself because she she knew it could impact her work and it could target her community during a time of increased anti-Semitism. But no, Taylor Lorenz called that information out to increase the bullying, and when people started bullying the wrong Chayarechik, she said, you don't want to harass that one, that you got to go look more detailed. This is not the right woman. In other words, she didn't tell them stop bullying. She told them to aim better. Which is to say that Taylor Lorenz is not against bullying as she claims to be. She's all about controlling the narrative. We have to shut down libs of TikTok and we have to shut down Kiwi Farms so that we have total conformity of ideology, which is, of course, the same thing that these students are trying to do to Yeshiva University. Do you know what I think they're driving toward? Because I thought Biden did this last Thursday night by saying the great uniter from his State of the Union address turns into half of America is, is to be condemned as a threat to the republic. And I thought, well, that's not very unifying, Joe. Uh, but, but I may not be. The, I'm not the only person who's pointed that out. We're not into rioting or looting or, or any of those things. We never have been. You know, the Tea Party usually would have a big rally and they'd leave the place cleaner than when they got there. But... When we're backed into a corner and you say you are not going to be allowed to believe as you like, you're not going to be left alone, which is most of what the Bill of Rights is about. Leave me alone. Let the government leave me alone. Let me live my own life. When you want to play the game that way, at some point, I think turnabout is going to be fair play. Uh, I, I don't look forward to that day because I don't think it's going to be very pretty. Uh, but, but it really strikes me that if that's the way they're going to play the game and they're going to essentially say, you're not going to be allowed to exist in this society and believe as you choose, uh, then, then we may just have to start playing hardball. Someone shared a meme today from a trans organization pointing out that 90, 98% of straight men won't date a trans man become woman, meaning a, a woman who's actually no not kidding. a woman but another man. Yeah. And they claimed that that was because of hate. So they just called every Orthodox Jew in the world hateful. It's not difficult to figure out who the real bigot is in that equation. No, it isn't at all. Great you and me hateful and bigoted and transphobic and homophobic and misogynist for believing the same biblical beliefs we had a hundred years ago. Absolutely right. Rabbi Yaakov, thank you very much. That's ya Rabbi Yaakov Menken. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Five people with disabilities. Good 
proving you can't transmit disease through the radio. Trust me, you don't want what he has. More with Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your calls, and I'll do that in just a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. If there's one pattern that I want you to watch about the Biden administration and how they're trying to push change, the pattern has two parts. Number one, the Biden administration, to a large degree, has not been able to get anything done on Capitol Hill, even though the Democrats have a tiny majority in the House and a razor-thin majority over in the Senate. So what the president does is he says, well, I'll do it through executive order. The second part of the pattern is that an awful lot, if not the vast majority, of Joe Biden's executive orders are then thrown out by the courts because he's doing it illegally or unconstitutionally or both. Now, if anybody knows, well, the person who would know and would correct me if I'm wrong on either one of those is Sarah Partial Perry, who joins me now, legal fellow at the Mies Center for Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Sarah, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Lars. Now, was I off base in saying Joe can't get anything done on Capitol Hill despite Democrat majorities. He does it through executive order, and then the courts throw a lot, if not most, of his executive order changes out. No, you are exactly right. In fact, uh, I think the executive is out of control, and the only corral that's sort of in existence around this out-of-control executive branch is truly the judicial branch, because he can't accomplish, even with slim majorities in the Senate and in the House, Anything he wants to get done, probably because he knows that they're either unconstitutional or he won't garner the votes that he actually needs. But his executive has tried to find any way they can under statutory interpretation to shoehorn his pet projects through. And they have been routinely struck down by federal courts, not the least of which is the Supreme Court, who not only with the EPA, but also with the Centers for Disease Control and with the OSHA administration, have struck down three, count them three, of this administration's <laughs> attempts to use federal law to pass a policy agenda without actually making law. Now, usually when there's a Republican administration in and a Republican administration tries to do this and then they fail and they're thrown out by the courts, the news media goes crazy. The news media has been strangely silent on this. The latest example, though, and you've focused on this, is America's discrimination laws, which I do not think were, were written at a time or within mind, things like trans and pronouns and all that. What's Joe Biden's administration trying to do now with America's dis discrimination laws? Well, two of its federal agencies, the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and the Department of Education, have taken documents called interpretive guidance or technical assistance guidance. These are essentially ways of clarifying for the public what the law actually says and how the agency is going to apply and interpret that law. But here's the problem. When they make up a portion of the law that doesn't actually exist, and the Supreme Court has been very clear about what and does and does not exist, they can't use a phrase like interpretive guidance or technical assistance to actually make new law. And just recently, just a few days ago in the Eastern District of Tennessee at Knoxville, Judge uh, Ashley, federal judge there, struck down two of these guidance documents, one from the EEOC and one from the Department of Education. The Department of Education's guidance was Title IX, 
of the Education Amendments. That is the prohibition on any sex discrimination in federally funded education programs. And with the EEOC, it was Title VII of the Civil Rights Act prohibiting, among other things, sex discrimination in employment context. What the Biden administration has done, two different agencies took the same approach, saying that the Supreme Court's Bostock versus Clayton County decision from 2020 essentially shoehorned things like bathroom use, dorm use, showers, preferred pronouns, workplace dress codes, and athletics, and said, Bostock applies. We're Expanding, but we're just clarifying sex in federal anti-discrimination law to include gender identity. But don't worry, we're not making new law, which is exactly what the EEOC said. This is not, quote, new policy. Well, this federal judge just a few days ago roundly disagreed, and he issued an injunction against both the Department of Education's guidance and the EEOC's guidance ruling in favor of 20 states, a coalition of state attorney generals who said, guys, you've made it impossible for us to comply with our state laws and federal law because you take a different interpretation and you're making something up that doesn't exist. So this is a great outcome coming out of federal court in Tennessee. Sarah Parshall Perry is at the uh, Mies Center at the Heritage Foundation. So To try and unwind some of this for my audience, I'm not a lawyer, and most of them aren't lawyers, thank God, either. Um, But what they're saying is Title IX, which referred to gender, uh, that when it was written decades ago, I think it referred to whether or not you have a penis or a vagina. You know, that that's what gender was about, men and women. But now they want to shoehorn in, no, no, they meant biological men who now identify themselves as women or vice versa. And that's what they're trying to shoehorn in, getting them the bathroom and locker room and shower and and all other kinds of facilities treatments that they want without having to go to the Congress and actually ask those Democrats on Capitol Hill to write new law that actually says that. Is that about a Ab- good and absolutely, is that how it's working? absolutely. So what they're doing is they're utilizing this sort of, you know, easy, well, we're just clarifying, we're just issuing some informal guidance. And listen, this is a favorite technique of the Obama-Biden administration. And wouldn't you know that under the Biden-Harris administration, we're seeing it again, not surprisingly. In fact, in no small coincidence, Catherine Lehman, who was the Secretary for Civil Rights at the Department of Education under Obama, is now getting her second run in that role under President Biden. She loves informal guidance. We'll tell you what the rule is. We're just clarifying, but in actuality, what we're doing is really making up new law. Because as you know, Lars, the Supreme Court in Bostock was very careful to limit its holdings, saying we are not talking about bathrooms, restrooms, sports or locker rooms, or anything of the kind. And Judge Ashley rightly recognized that. He issued the injunction. We know Department of Justice is going to appeal to the Sixth Circuit. But what I'm hopeful is that the Sixth Circuit will confirm this finding. But I do think these issues of whether or not these federal agencies are acting too far outside the bounds of their authority is ultimately destined yet again for the Supreme Court. Well, and Sarah, let me ask you this. The whole point of Title IX was you had a lot of facilities, you know, public schools, colleges, and universities that weren't affording equal opportunity. They have big football team for men, basketball team for men, all these other teams for men, and the women weren't getting some kind of, of, of equal opportunity to take part in, say, athletics and sports. 
they're trying to take something that was designed to benefit women and and change it into something that actually says, hey, ladies, when you run track and field, you're going to be running against some biological men who are probably going to beat your times and you're going to be shoved out of competition. So they're taking something designed to help young women and using it to change it into something that benefits young biological men who call themselves women? Is that the, the practical and effect of this? <laughs> that is the practical effect. And not just in sports, but in single-sex admissions, locker rooms, dorm rooms, bathrooms, showers, you name it. This is going to have that significant an impact. And isn't that the poetic irony in all of this? In fact, we saw a brand-new proposed rule from the Department of Education on the 50th anniversary of Title IX, a feminist triumph, the watershed for women's equality in education. And he went on to expand sex to include gender identity. So as long as you tell me you're a woman, you can run on my daughter's track team or my daughter's volleyball team. That's all that's required. So this is a fundamental upending of federal law. And I got to tell you, I'm encouraged by at least this early procedural win. We still have to see the final rule. That is Sarah Marshall Perry. Sarah, I've got a break. Thank you very much. You've got the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. your First Amendment right every single day. This is Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show, and welcome to my favorite day of the week, the day we open up the phone lines and every subject is fair game. And there's a lot to talk about as well. The passing of Sandra Day O'Connor, the very first woman to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, and I'm sad to hear of her passing. Uh, we had the crazy Ron DeSantis-Gavin Newsom debate last night, and that's been interesting as well. Although Ron DeSantis' campaign is said to have a number of problems right now, they've apparently got internal strife within the campaign staff, and that's not doing Ron DeSantis any favors. Fact is, he doesn't have the support, and I don't think he'll get the support between now and, say, July of next year to be able to secure the Republican nomination. And, of course, the deep state out there, yeah, the deep staters out there, they would like you to go for Nikki Haley instead. I think for a while the deep state and the establishment Republicans really wanted you to go for DeSantis. The deep state and the establishment Republicans do not like Donald Trump, even though they realize he is the most likely person, almost certain at this point, to get the nomination. And that's going to be a happy day for Americans. But welcome to First Amendment Friday. Glad to get your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you happen to be a naysayer on this program for almost 26 years, we've always put naysayers to the head of the line. And we'll be glad to do it every single time if you disagree. We're not one of those shows where we screen out the point of view of people who disagree with me. Because you want to disagree with me, just bring some facts and some logic and a willingness to answer a couple of questions and you are good to go. 
I want to tell you about one of the crazy things that's being done by the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, as though he doesn't have enough problems already with an illegal alien invasion. Now he's going to go to bat for those who are suffering from height and weight discrimination. Believe it or not, you know, with all the other city problems that New York City has, you would think that would be fairly low on the priority list. But welcome to the program. If you want to vote in our Twitter poll as your way of participating, this one is strange. A state decides to adopt a perfectly sensible law that says boys born as boys use the boys' room in public school restrooms and locker rooms. Girls use the ladies' room or the girls' room and the girls' locker room. And uh, and you don't have trans boy, trans women who used to be boys or now pretend that they are women uh, using the women's locker room. I think that is a perfectly sensible thing to do. And the state of Idaho adopted that law. So that was the choice of the people's representatives in Idaho. It's a choice I happen to agree with. But even if I didn't agree with it, it was the choice of their lawmakers. And now we have 21 Democrat attorneys general from the from 21 reliably blue left wing states around America who are joining in to a legal effort to try to kill that law in the state of Idaho. A law that, do I need to mention the fact that the laws of Idaho don't apply anywhere outside the laws of the state of Idaho? I mean, this doesn't make any sense at all. It's as though California, which is one of the states, uh, New York State under Letitia James, that they seem to think that they have the authority to tell Idaho what kind of laws they may have and which kind of laws they may not have. So I don't agree with that, but should a state... States, a group of states, in this case, 21 of them, legally go after a state that provides protection of privacy and safety and security in public bathrooms. I would answer no to that. You can answer any way you like at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I've always believed in. I joined a long time ago. You should join too. Just go to amac.us or call them up, 888-262-2006. AMAC's better, better for you and better for America. Now, yesterday, the poll was this. Does America need to scale back on the number of legal immigrants it accepts? Again, I'm not talking about the massive invasion that Joe Biden set off of millions of illegal aliens in just the last three years. But do we need to scale back on the number of legal immigrants as well? I answered that one yes, and I told you I think the right number might be, say, a half a million people a year. It has been as low during uh, the 80s as about 300,000 legal and, and uh, green cards a year handed out. It's been as high as well over a million as it is currently. I think we need to scale that back. I think we need to let the uh, let the country adjust and assimilate the people that have already come in so we don't end up as just a bunch of fractured cultures spread out across the American landscape. 82% of you agreed with my yes vote. Only 18% of you said no. 866-439-5277. Before I go to calls, let me mention just this. Eric Adams, mayor of New York City, who has big, huge problems. He has problems with law enforcement. He has problems with illegal aliens. He has economic problems. The city is telling its own residents they've got to dramatically cut back on all the essential services provided by the city. And what does he do now? He signs a new law into effect to prohibit discrimination on the basis of a person's height or weight 
in employment, housing, and public accommodations. They might as well have called it the lawyer full employment law because it really isn't A, necessary, or B, going to do anybody any good. The law creates an exemption for employers who need to consider height or weight in employment decisions only where required by federal, state, or local laws and regulations, or where the Commission on Human Rights, again, another city hall bureaucracy, permits such considerations because height or weight may prevent a person from performing the essential requirements of the job. So in other words, you can only use it where it makes sense to use it. And have we seen any examples of somebody, of course, these days, people will tell you all day long and twice on Sunday why I'm a victim. I'm a victim because of fat. I'm a victim because of height. I'm a victim because I'm short. Yes, we've created brand new victim classes in America. That makes no sense whatsoever to me. To your calls now. Let's go first to Alabama and talk to Victoria. Hey, Victoria, welcome to First Amendment Friday. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars, first time caller here. I just wanted to know why is it that, uh, I guess, the media constantly talks about how Kamala Harris is black and she's not? Um, well, she, she has a black father. Uh, she's, uh, and her mother was Asian, I believe. So why would you say she's not? Well, because uh, I did not know that her father was. I thought that she was an Indian and that they would always say that she was a black woman. So I didn't even know that. No, that's that's her racial makeup. And frankly, I I don't know why anybody cares what race anybody is, Victoria. I mean, honestly, uh, you know, I I know that they they wanted to, you know, Joe Biden said he wanted to pick a person of color uh, who was also female for his vice president. So he, he hired Kamala Harris as an affirmative action hire. Now, can you imagine we also I mean, I think those of us who who reasonably don't care what somebody's race or gender is. We say, hire the best person for the job. Don't hire based on things that have nothing to do with the job. And look what you get in an affirmative action hire like Kamala Hamas. In any case, Victoria, thanks for the call. Back in a moment, I'll get more more of your calls at 866-A-Lars. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Looking for a new way to give? It's Friday, Friday. Yeah, it's Friday. Woo! Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday. Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Glad to get to your phone calls and emails, and we've got a slew of things to talk about. Donald Trump stands to win the presidency less than a year from now, so the Democrats are so desperate, they've been trying to just keep him off the ballot. 
And guess what? They're failing at that as well. I want to get into that in just a moment. But first, welcome to the program. Glad to have you on board. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's always here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you happen to be a naysayer, you disagree with my point of view, you're not only welcome, you're more than welcome. We're going to put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our Twitter poll. We put it up both on Twitter or X if you prefer and on my website at LarsLarson.com. And today's question might just challenge you. Should the beating death of a white teenager at the hands of black teenagers not bring some kind of national outrage? You probably heard about the story. We've mentioned it. It happened on the 8th of November, about a week ago. Jonathan Lewis, 17, died after he was swarmed by more than 10 of his classmates, and they attacked him. Apparently, the the whole dispute had to do with him defending a younger, smaller child, but also had to do something with a disagreement over somebody's headphones, allegedly stolen headphones. So now the police in Las Vegas have arrested eight of the teenagers who are accused of beating a classmate to death earlier this month in a fight over stolen headphones. Well, my friend and fellow talker, the guy who's behind KWAM, our affiliate Memphis, Tennessee, Todd Starn, says... If 10 white people beat a black teenager to death, the entire nation would burn. Biden would declare a national emergency. Congress would have convened emergency hearings. The professional race agitators, and you know who they are, Al Sharpton and the like, would be marching in the streets. And the news media, they would have been anchoring their shows from Las Vegas. But that's not what's happening. What's happening is, oh, yeah, well, a kid was beaten to death. Some other kids are accused of it. Who cares what color or race the perpetrators or the victims are? How is it we have a double standard like that? Because Todd's right. If 10 white people beat a black teenager to death, this country would be on fire right now. But a white teenager gets beaten to death by a predominantly black crowd of suspects who have now been accused, other teenagers now accused of that beating death. And it's a big ho-hum from the legacy media. Anyway, you can find today's Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show on Twitter, LarsLarson.com. On our website, it's brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I join. You should, too. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better. Better for you and better for America. Now, let me go right to a naysayer. I love starting with a naysayer. Dale. Dale, welcome to the program. What's on your mind today? Hey, thanks, Lars. Uh, so I don't understand the, how all the, the history of the DACA, the semi-illegal aliens, are they paying in, when they get a job, are they paying into the taxes? Sometimes. They for the draft? Some, sometimes they are. Sometimes they work under the table. There's no definitive answer to that. But what what is important is if they're not in America legally, they are not legally allowed to work a job, period. So they're not paying into Social Security. Well, they may be. They may be. They may not be. But that's not the point. And I'll tell you why. I know people have said, well, this is the bailout for Social Security we've all been waiting for. We're going to have millions of people come in and pay into Social Security and then never collect a dime. That is not the way it's going to work because from past experience with the past amnesty of 1986, 
they make they make it legal, say, okay, we're going to give amnesty. At the time, the promise was, I think, 1.2 million people, and it ended up being multiple millions of illegal aliens who got amnesty. And then they had something called totalization, because all that, all that will happen, it won't happen today, but if you were to legalize the status of millions of illegals that say Joe Biden is allowed in, at some point, probably 5, 10, 20 years from now, they're going to say, hey, I've been paying into this for the last 10, 20 years. I have a right to collect. And the courts, being liberal as they usually are, will say, you're right. You shouldn't have paid into something that you can't collect from. So all you get is additional people who are going to end up collecting from the system as well. That's a loser proposition, Dale. Why can't we get them right now? And get say, what right now? You can have citizenship, and you're going to be on the books, just like every other real Because American. then that means you've just and, added and some more contributors. And have to register for the draft. Okay, they do. Actually, the law already says, whether you're here legally or not, if you're a male between 19 and 26 years of age, you have to register for the draft. And the only, you know, if you don't do it, you've broken the law, and you may be ineligible for certain federal jobs and even federal loans for school. But other than that, there's no enforcement mechanism. But it's already the law they have to register for the draft. But that's not a big deal. Fill out a piece of paper, fine, you're registered. That doesn't, how does that help America? Well, I believe that when you look at your paycheck and you see all this tax money drawn out, yep, you should be able to vote on that. No, I don't believe so. Dale, I'd be willing to bet if you own a house in a different state and they have property taxes there and there's a vote on property taxes and you own a, a house somewhere else other than where you live and where you're a resident, do you get to vote on that? Of course. I live there. No, I said, if you own a, say you own a vacation house in some other state than where you live right now, do you get to vote on oh. local measures like city council, county commission, or on property no, taxes? No, I only get to vote where I live. That's I right. That. Now, if, if, you, if you are in America making money, there are plenty of foreign nationals who are here legally. They're here on work visas. They're here on a green card visa. But if you're not a citizen, you don't get to vote. If you're not a citizen, you don't get to run for office. You want to give that away? I guess not. Dale, thanks for the call. Let's go to Alabama and Mike. Hey, Mike, welcome to the Lars Larson Show on a Wednesday. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars. Um, let me, as far as the Social Security, I read on the Social Security website that is involving collecting Social Security in other countries. You can collect Social Security even if you're not an American citizen. If you work in this country, I mean, if I you work in this country legally, no, it didn't say anything about legally. It just uh, that's not. I can tell you, country. there's a famous Supreme Court case where a man was kicked out of the United States. It turns out he'd been, I think, he was either allied with the Italians or the Nazis during World War II, and he took his case all the way to the Supreme Court and said, "I paid in for 20 years, and I worked in. I think he worked in an automobile plant in Michigan." And uh, he took his case to the Supreme Court and said, I paid into this. I, I'm entitled to collect back. And they said, no, you got kicked out because of the things you did during World War II. And you, do, you have no absolute right to collect Social Security. I can go back and look up that Supreme Court case if you like. But no, the fact is, if you're not paying into it legally, you can't collect it. If you, if you don't have a Social Security number and illegal aliens do not, how in the world could you collect from a system that you've paid into if you weren't part of the system to begin with.
back in just a moment. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Adjust your volume. He's just that loud. Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I gotta tell you something. I use the term woke because I call it a term of art. It's come to mean something today that perhaps if you'd used the word a decade ago or even half a decade ago, uh, people wouldn't have taken the same meaning from it. Peter Zane has written about it as a columnist for Real Clear Politics, and we always like having him come on the program. Peter, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. What do you it. mean? What do people mean by woke? Uh, and, and I've got my own, I think, working definition that works, but uh, what is it that people are getting excited about that, that woke has been hijacked by the right? I guess that would include me. Well, I, so I wrote a column about it because there was a conservative woman who's written a book about woke, and so she clearly knows how to define the term, but she was asked to define it, and she stumbled a little bit. And so the, the woke people did two things that are very uh, telling. The first thing is, is that they had collective guilt. So they said that she could not define the term then, so therefore nobody can. <laughs> and then they pretended that there, no meaning actually exists of a word that we use all the time. And so I started to think about what does woke mean and how do I use it and what is the essence of it? And I think that the essence of woke is that it is the ongoing cultural revolution and the effort by the left to command language and perception to define reality in any way that's useful to their aims. And I think that's the fundamental thing that brings all of it together, is we are going to tell you what reality is, and reality is whatever we find it useful to be. I mean, because I guess when we go back to what, what racism is, and then you've got somebody who says, but I'm not racist, and then you have people, a whole crowd of people today saying, but it's not enough to just not be racist. That is, not use somebody's skin color to determine how you're going to treat them or or be or or make or you know the the way you're going to interact with them so if somebody uh, you know pulls up to a gas station and a man comes out to pump his gas who happens to be a black man and he says no i don't want you pumping my gas i want that guy over there the white guy you know i would say okay that that seems pretty blatantly racist but that these days it's not enough to just be colorblind to say i don't care what color our waitress is or or the guy who pumps the gas or the guy who's running my bank loan uh at at the right. at the bank i don't care what color he is it makes no difference that's not enough you to be woke you have to be actively anti-racist is is that a piece of it i i i certainly think that's a piece of it but what i was trying to get at in my column is because one of the things you know even thoughtful conservatives have sort of tried to define it as well, a belief that America has a long history of oppression and repression that continues, and woke people feel that it's systemic and it's in our DNA, and 
difficult to overcome, but we have to work towards it. I think that their central impulse is to problematize all of the existing structures of society, and that's marriage, that's capitalism, that's your faith, whatever it is, to point out problems in it. Um, And I don't know what they're trying to replace it with. So that's the first thing, is they constantly are trying to problematize things. And then I think that the, the umbrella is not, geez, how do you feel about black people or affirmative action or whatever? It's, I'm going to tell you that the BLM riots were mostly peaceful. And it doesn't matter that you saw lots of rioting. That doesn't, and it's the, the insistence on telling us things that are obviously false. And that's with COVID, that's with trans stuff. There's a million things that, and I think that's the central element of it, is to impose a view of reality. And then what you see is when, when people are like, they, they push back, then the coercion starts, then the illiberalism starts, then the demonization starts. And I think that this, this, this little episode here where they go, woke isn't even a word, it doesn't mean anything. Well, we all know what it is. You know, we, we, we roughly know what it is, just like we know what justice is. We know what fairness is. We can argue about that objectivity. What is objectivity? You know, there's not one definition that 100% of people agree on. But we are all swimming in the same water. But that's inconvenient to them. So they have to gaslight you and say, it's not even a word. Yeah, because then they, the they take impulse. They take away that word by saying that word is now what forbidden to be used by you because you don't know what it means. Is that the uh, is that it's what they're trying up. to do? You know, even though it was actually developed by African Americans, and in a weird way, it has a long tradition even before you know African Americans. What ninety years or so is, is ninety survival. years a fair timeline for that, Peter? For for which one? I'm sorry. For woke. In, in, I, I think it can be traced back in terms of African-Americans to the 30s. But, I mean, honestly, you know, George Whitfield in the First Great Awakening in the 18th century, I mean, there's this idea of, like, being aware of what you can't see, being awakened to the truth. And that's what they have, you know, sort of taken it in that American tradition, but they've married it to, you know, this absolute, you know, coercive, uh, language that denies reality. And that's why you see even, you know, Joe Biden, when he says, oh, our pull out of Afghanistan was perfect. And people are like, well, clearly it wasn't. And we left billions of dollars of equipment. You don't think of that as being woke, but it is, because it is the central element of we are going to tell you what reality is, and you are going to submit. And if you don't, we're going to call you names. We're going to cancel you. Well, we're going to suggest that you're you're you are unwoke and unwoke is a crime. I mean, for example, if and I I guess what it reminds me of, Peter, is, you know, the the term of art uh, fruit of the poisonous tree. It usually applies in in uh, law enforcement where if a bad uh, search was done, was search that violated somebody's constitutional rights, everything that comes out of that is flawed and forbidden. You know, it's forbidden to be used in court. So if you can say America is fatally flawed because of its origins, not in 1776, but in 1619, 
then everything that came out of that, everything that exists around you, every structure, every person, every institution, they are also, also fatally flawed. And by defining it that way, you can then say, and now because all these things around us are flawed, every element of government, every element of business, then therefore you're not entitled to enjoy any of the benefits from any of those institutions, including capitalism, uh, the republic we live in, uh, the system of voting, all of that is forbidden because it's all fatally flawed as fruit of the poisonous tree. Exactly. And I think that, again, the other key point of this, and I think it is command of reality and language, but is the problematizing. Because you say to yourself, well, what do they want to replace it with? They don't know. There, there's no, you, you can't find one of these left-wing people, you know, they could talk in the most general, bizarre terms, you know, that are completely <laughs> incoherent, by the way. Um, you know, oh, well, just a fair society or whatever. But, like, what, what exactly are we going to be a nation built around? What's going to pull us together as a people? What kind of economic system are we going to have that can afford to produce enough wealth to take care of people? They don't think if we don't like the family, what are we going to replace it with? And, I mean, I would point out to you that they have pretty much controlled the schools and the culture for the last 30 years, and we have an epidemic of anxiety, depression, suicide among our youth. I mean, the, the, that is just – and they never take a step back and say, geez, we're doing all this, and what are we getting? And by the way, I'm talking to Peter Zane, who's a columnist at Real Clear Politics. Peter, I think they plan to replace it with government. I mean, I just did a whole segment on the fact that the schools are now openly saying, you parents have no right to say to us, you can't teach my kid that. So the schools replace the parents. Well, who's going to feed the kids? That would be the schools. And who's going to feed people? Well, that would be the government. Uh, food stamps, welfare, TANF, whatever, guaranteed annual, guaranteed monthly income or universal basic income. Who's going to take care of the medical? That'll be the government as well. Peter Zane's columns can be found at Real Clear Politics back in just a moment. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. For a strong Wi-Fi signal, his voice will reach you. This is Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. You might have wondered earlier this year whether Hunter Biden, the son of Joe Biden, the smartest guy Joe Biden says he's ever met in his life, was getting a pass. And why? Because he and his lawyers plan to walk into court. Hunter Biden was accused of tax crimes. Some of the tax crimes that actually eclipsed the statute of limitations. So he wasn't going to be charged on those at all. He was going to get no time in custody. And then he was going to be effectively forgiven for illegally buying a firearm while he was using hard drugs. And you say, well, I heard a lot of people say, gosh, nobody ever gets prosecuted for that. That is not true. And let me give you an example from just right now. 
the mother of the six-year-old boy, you might remember the story because we talked about it, six-year-old boy takes a pistol to school, shoots his teacher in Virginia. Thank God she survived. But the mother was using pot while she owned a firearm, which is illegal under federal law. Deja Taylor, her son, took her handgun to school and shot Abby Zwerner in her first grade classroom back in January, seriously wounding the teacher. Thank God, as I said, she's recovered. Investigators later found nearly an ounce of pot and that uh, well, I'm not a pot user. I live in a state where it's legal, but that's a lot of pot. In Taylor's bedroom, and evidence of frequent drug use in her text messages and paraphernalia. She's 26 years old. She has a six-year-old boy. The boy took the gun to school, shot a teacher, and guess what? She got sentenced to 21 months in prison for using pot while owning a firearm. Meanwhile, Hunter Biden, who was using crack cocaine by his own account and owned not just the gun there's a record of him buying but the gun that's depicted in a number of photos of hunter biden is not the same gun that he allegedly bought legally so it may have been that he had two guns one purchased legally and one purchased illegally does hunter biden get any kind of punishment no not not in a country where a d in front of your name makes you almost immune from prosecution as i pointed out joe biden seems to be immune from prosecution because he's a democrat and on that note let's go to wisconsin and talk to jerry hey jerry welcome to the lars larson show what's on your mind yeah um those on the left who you call the woke left and this is not everybody on the left with that opinion who say that only a gay actor can play a gay character they're wrong I want the best performance, the person who can perform it best. That is what I look at. But, Lars, you're the equivalent of those on what you call the woke left, because you don't want a transgender boy, a barge girl, to play a male character, because even though this is not like sports, where someone might have an athletic advantage, naturally, what I want is the best performance. If that's the best performer, I want that person cast. But you have this... I against anything transgender. No, that I don't. Comes from, if, yes, Jerry, do. Jerry, just so we're clear, if somebody in America who is born a biological male wants to wear women's clothing and call himself by a woman's name and wants to say, well, you've got to call me by a pronoun, he's allowed to do whatever he or she wants to do. What they're not allowed to do is tell me that I can't take that into account and act accordingly. In other words, if he wants to call himself she, she is perfectly able to call herself, if she insists on that, she. But you don't have any right to tell me, and I must call I you she as well. I don't know what this has to do with the case. I have no idea what this has to do with all this up. To do with I, it at I just, all. I'm telling you where I stand. I, I think that it individuals... It has nothing to do with the casting. So what? This, whatever you view it has nothing to do with the casting of a person. It's up to the casting director to perform, put the best person in. You know, if you don't want to watch the performance, so watch the performance. You no, know, you except can for whatever this. you want to do. Do you know where I do have something to say about it, Jerry? In in the case in the case of a high school play, I don't live in Texas, but I pay taxes that support public schools. When the public schools start pushing this nonsense because it's part oh, God, of the LGBTQ anything. agenda, let me finish. I let so you, freaking hey, Jerry, it. I let you finish. Yeah. What I'm saying okay. is that what you're trying to do is push a political slash sexual agenda using public resources. I don't think the school has any business doing that. Do you? 
No, they're not pushing an agenda. They're, pu- they're casting the person who's best at the role. You're just so biased as anti-transgender that you want to ban even the best person from the role because you are so scared of what that person might be like. Let me You're ask so you something then, Jerry. Let's test your resolve. Let's, t- let's test your resolve. Are you willing to let me do that? Okay. Let's say that you are casting the play To Kill a Mockingbird. Now, there are characters for a reason in that play who are black and some who are white. What if you find the best actor who has the best portrayal wearing the right makeup to, to play the black character in that story, the, 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 uh, the lead character in that, in that play, and you say, but this white actor really does a better job of bringing across the emotion and everything else. All he has to do is wear the right kind of makeup. Now, every actor and actress wears makeup, wears, we don't call them costumes, but they are dressed for the character they're playing. Would you be okay with a white actor portraying a black actor in a movie, a, bl- a black character in a movie? I, I would be okay with a white actor playing uh, the betrayal. The problem with the makeup, and you know, is the history of uh, blackface was mocking. No, I understand uh, that, but but Eddie people. Murphy, Eddie Murphy so, so showed that know. he could be made up. He could be made up to make him look absolutely like a white American so instead not, of the black not, American that he is. Analogous. But you would be okay. Why not? But that's a problem. It's not analogous because there was a history of mockery of black people by the use of blackface. A person who's transgender and is born into the wrong side, not mocking. That's what he was. He is. He's essentially a person who was born. Is mockery allowed? Is mockery allowed in media? Uh, I mean, under the First Amendment. Well, I don't hold know on. Almost every like. parody, almost every parody is made is is a kind of. If you've watched the original Blazing Saddles, that whole movie was a wall to wall mockery sure. of various different kinds of stereotypes. It was made by a very liberal guy, uh, you know, by Carl Carl Reiner, and and so it's a movie. I think it was Carl Reiner, and and so he made uh, the Melbourne? movie to do a send up of all these stereotypes about the Old West, about cowboys and Indians and race and the whole nine yards. The whole movie was mockery. Is that allowed? Yeah, you can make mockery. I mean, under the First Amendment, and yeah, generally I agree with me, but there was a history of very severe mockery, not just general mockery. Well, very severe mockery. Do you suppose that when we get past Donald Trump's next term in office as president, which will be five years from now, that there will be plenty of movies that will mock Donald Trump? Do you think that Alec Baldwin, for uh, until he Trump went off and, and killed somebody, uh, that he, he mocked Donald Trump yeah, on a regular yeah. basis? You're not mocking a whole group of people when you mock Donald Trump. African Americans. Well, then Americans, I'm asking you then, if, if, you're, if your goal is not to mock, if your goal like Don't get stuck on the one point, Jerry. I'm trying to find yeah, out you if you're that. okay with a biological boy pretending to be a girl, making if himself up to look like it. Hold on. Let me finish the they're question. Let me finish the question. If you're okay with a biological boy, not mocking, pretending to be a girl, making himself look female and portraying a role, why would you be against somebody who's a black actor portraying a white actor or vice versa? One, I don't. What? I don't agree that um, if a transgender person is pretending. So they're not pretending. Are you talking about the actor, like pretending in terms of the portrayal of the role? I mean, in that sense, yeah, they're pretending, but you don't have the history. Well, every actor is pretending. Uh, uh, Jerry, isn't every single actor pretending to be something they're not? Or is Keanu Reeves really a stone-cold killer? 
No, but I'm not. I didn't against, think so. Should we only allow the Keanu Reeves character in the John Wick movies to, to be portrayed by a real life serial killer? I mean, that would be an interesting standard. I'm not sure you'd have very good chance of that because most of the Stone Cold killers are at least dead or locked up somewhere. Back in a moment, Jerry. Thanks for the call. You got the Lars Larson show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson show. want to be at this is the lars larson show you're listening to the best of the lars larson show welcome back to the lars larson show it's a pleasure to be with you and i'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails which we'll do in just a moment david speaker joins me now who's president of guidestone funds which recently launched the largest pro-life impact fund listed on the nasdaq david welcome back thank you good to talk to you lars Nice to talk to you as well. I want to ask you about this because I've always told my audience, I don't think ESG forced on people either through, you know, uh, these big funds going after state pension investments and all that, where it's largely out of sight of the people who are most directly financially affected taxpayers. I don't think it's right at all. On the other hand, I've always said that if you want to invest your money and you tell your investment fund, hey, I don't want to be in alcohol or I don't want to be in tobacco, I don't want to be in firearms or whatever it is you don't want to be, oil, uh, go ahead. This is something where you're taking ESG, except it's really not ESG. It's individual investors saying, I'd like to be in- invested in things that actually preserve life on planet Earth instead of uh, trying to destroy the economy the way the broader ESG uh, argument is. Yeah, that's right. We live in in the United States of America, the land of the free, and we like freedom. And so as believers, we want to be free to invest in the things that support our values. And things that support our values are pro-life, things that are supportive of life from conception to death. And we want to help people around the world. We want to do the things that Jesus taught us to do, to provide for the needy. And that's what this fund does. It invests in entities that, that do those things. Um, but also invest in, in energy companies and companies that are producing energy that is a needed commodity around the world to raise standards of living. Yeah, because in this modern world, you can't you can't be very pro-life if you're if you're not in favor of producing the energy it takes to run our society, whether it's a first world society or even third world societies. Right. That's that's exactly right. One of the companies we invest in, and this isn't specifically an energy company, but we invest in a company that is the largest provider of Internet and wireless services in Africa and the Middle East. Now you think, okay, how is that an impact company? Well, how do people get by these days without a cell phone? How do they get by without access to the Internet? They don't. And even people in third world countries need access to the Internet. And so we want to provide that. Energy, obviously, is a great example how do you create a business? How do you support a lifestyle without having access to energy? So these are the types of investments that we're making that the ESG folks aren't really paying attention to because they're so focused on the thing of the day, and that's climate change, and that's their focus today. We're truly focused on helping people around the world live a life of meaning. 
Well, and in fact, even if you're talking about desperately poor countries that occasionally have mineral resources, you may preserve a lot of lives if you say, well, let's invest in a company that's capable of going in there and getting the oil out or the minerals out or whatever it is, because we're going to make lots and lots of jobs with income, even though from our perspective, we want it because maybe we want the oil or we want the cobalt or we want whatever. But if you're investing in a right, in the right way, you can benefit people in both circumstances, first world and third world, can't you? Absolutely. When you think about people that go out on mission and ministry organizations, mission organizations, one of the key things they're doing is providing economic opportunity for peoples in third world countries that don't have economic opportunity. They're barely getting by. And so to the extent we can provide investment in any sort of industry, whether it's mining or energy production or whatever the case may be, yes, we are providing jobs for those people. And again, we're investing with companies that do it the right way. We're not investing in companies that use child labor or that take advantage of people. We're investing in companies that do it the right way, that are honorable organizations that are truly interested in the betterment of the communities they serve. All right. Now, are you getting pushback from the folks with ESG, because it would seem in some cases you're offering your clients the very thing that they're telling their clients to get away from. Um, not so much, Lars. I'll tell you, the, the funds are relatively new. We actually launched the original fund two years ago and then split it up into two different funds, an equity and a fixed income fund just within the last couple of months. So we don't have a real long track record. So yeah. it's not that well known. But our market is primarily evangelical Christians and people that are just tired of what's going on in society these days. He thinks society is throwing at us and sticking in our face. So I've got a feeling as we get larger, we may get some pushback. But for now, there's just a lot of folks that are very happy to be able to invest in a fund that is investing according to their values. It's giving them the opportunity to invest in the things that they believe in, that are spreading the gospel, that are promoting the sanctity of life, that are helping people around the world, and aren't focused on climate change and things that aren't really of substance. I'm talking to David Spico's president of Guidestone Funds. That's one word, Guidestone Funds, which was recently launched the largest pro-life impact fund listed on the NASDAQ. David, you've answered what my audience would tell you. They get tired of me saying this, but I keep waiting for the marketplace to solve this. If all the ESG people are saying, we're going to get you out of uh, conventional energy like oil, natural gas, and all those things, which are good investments. I, I keep wondering who's going to step forward and say, well, if they're going to give up on all that stuff, uh, we're going to jump into it with both feet. And that way, you know, the ESG folks can go one direction, but you can take people another direction and probably with larger returns. Absolutely. The thing to keep in mind, one of the things we've been going through, right, with inflation has been high energy prices. The promotion of climate change agenda and clean energy is just going to promote even higher prices for oil and natural gas and coal and things of that nature. So we are providing the capital that these companies need to invest in production to help mitigate that rise in prices. And we all know that longer term, green energy is not the solution. Wind and solar and water, we cannot run the world's economies on wind, solar, and water. We need carbon fuels. And natural gas is a great solution. It's a clean energy, and it's something that's a great solution. And companies need capital to be able to produce natural gas. And so if natural gas prices stay high and we're providing that capital, 
that means a great return on that investment for our shareholders. Absolutely right. David Spica. David, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. That's David Spica, who is the president of Guidestone Funds, which recently launched the largest pro-life impact fund listed on the NASDAQ. Hey, folks, some advice. Secure your future, and nobody's going to do it better for you than Anthem Gold Group. If you're worried about government spending or international conflicts, you know the ones that do a job on your retirement savings? Times are uncertain, but your financial future doesn't have to be. Remember 2008? Yeah, a big financial crisis, but gold skyrocketed up. Do what the smart money does. Get your free gold survival kit today. Mention the Lars Larson Show and get a free safe with a qualified purchase. Free storage on a gold IRA for up to 10 years. Anthem Gold Group has the lowest prices around. Lightning fast one to three day shipping, an industry leading buyback plan that puts you in control. Call 855-660-5786. That's 855-660-5786. Secure your future with AnthemGoldGroup.com. That's AnthemGoldGroup.com. Individual results may vary. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Consult your tax attorney or financial professional before you make an investment decision. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. to health we're all on our it's friday 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 welcome to first amendment friday on the lars larson show thank god it's Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And always glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. I happen to be a gun owner. I believe in the Second Amendment. Uh, so I've got a dog in the fight in this conversation. I welcome with great joy Alan Gottlieb, who's founder of the Second Amendment Foundation, because we want to talk in particular about a federal district court judge in West Virginia who's issued a ruling uh, in, in the case of a federal law that prohibits handgun sales to 18 to 20-year-olds, calling it facially unconstitutional. Alan, welcome back. Hey, it's great to be with you, Lars. So this is a big deal. It's a very big deal, and it wasn't just a federal judge. It's actually the chief justice of the, of the circuit, which even makes it more important now, where does that where, now? Obviously, this is going to be contested and challenged by the other side, the gun grabbers, right? Well, there's no doubt that the Biden administration uh, and ATF, its Justice Department, is probably going to file a motion of appeal. Uh, since it just happened, they haven't done that yet, and they're probably going to try and get a stay until it gets it gets appealed. Uh, but it's a big victory. It's a great it's a great decision, and it's hard for them to pick at it. I'll be honest. And there's also a side story to this, which is really kind of interesting. Let's hear because, it. Because uh, in, in West Virginia, it's legal for an 18, 20-year-old to buy a handgun. They just can't go to a licensed federal FFL, or a licensed dealer, and buy it because they'll fail the background check because they're 18 to 20. They're not 21 years old. Yeah. So they can go buy it on the street without a background check, but they can't go to a licensed dealer and buy it with a background check, 
which makes the administration look kind of stupid. Yeah, it does. And and by the way, um, you know, the, the Biden Justice Department is literally arguing that 18, 19 and 20 year olds are not adults. Yeah, they have. But of course, they've lost that argument. <laughs> the judge didn't bite it at all. And the judge did it were a great opinion that, you know, during the uh, time of the revolution and the Second Amendment being written, you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds, you know, were part of the militia and, quote unquote, you know, own guns and were allowed to purchase them legally. Uh, so, I mean, the historic analogy that the administration is trying to use fell on deaf ears. I guess I'm just I know the judge has ruled that way. But in anticipating that they're going to appeal that ruling, is the Biden Justice Department really going to go to the higher courts and say, you can't tell us that these 19 year olds are adults? Are they going to stick to that position or will they leave that one uncontested? Well, I don't know how they can't stick to that position and at the same time appeal it, because quite honestly, that's what the whole case is about. Uh, and if they allow if they allow it to stand, uh, it means that the rulings can take effect nationwide. Well, and, and the other thing I'm thinking about is politically speaking, Alan, it, it, for the Biden administration to say, yep, we're going to argue that 19 and 18, 19 and 20 year olds are not adults. Uh, I can just imagine what a really effective Republican response could be with some some ads running nationwide saying the Biden DOJ is in court right now telling all you kids uh, you're not adults and you can't be trusted with the Second Amendment. That that can't go over very well in an election year, could it? No, it, it can't. You know, and we've won this type of case in other places as well, in Texas and California. And in those cases, is the Justice Department is trying to appeal those. We're trying to get these one in, in multiple circuits to force the Supreme Court to take the case because, quite frankly, we're winning it. We can't, we can't appeal it to the Supreme Court. So we need the Biden administration to be a little stupid and for them to appeal it to the Supreme Court so they can <laughs> get a national decision and more cementing Second Amendment rights. Come on, Alan. You don't doubt that the Biden administration will continue to be stupid, do you, and especially the ATF? No, I'm sure they will be, and they'll give us a high, higher court of victories as we go up the chain. And that's what we're looking for. The Second Amendment Foundation has planted seeds like this all over the country in courtrooms. We currently have 56 lawsuits filed actively going on right now in federal court. In fact, we just filed one today, uh, a little while ago, in California, in the Ninth Circuit, against the city of Los Angeles and the state of California for their still carry permit scheme they've come up with. And now cost a fortune and takes, in some cases, a year and a half to get a permit now in, in, in many places like Los Angeles and California, which surely flies in the face of the Supreme Court's Bruin ruling uh, that, that you have a right to keep your arms and a right to, right, right to carry. And, and they're denying people that in California, even though we won federal cases against it before. And, and once and so again, we're, I can, I can imagine the, uh, the, the, the optics of that to say, yeah, if you're an elite, if you've got a big bank account, if you know people in powerful places, you can carry a gun. If you're some poor slob taxpayer out there, tough luck for you. The Biden administration is saying that to American citizens. They are, and, and so is Governor Newsom in California as well. Uh, you know, actually, I think it's, we have uh, 18 of our 56 cases nationally right now, all filed in federal courts in California challenging California's crazy unconstitutional firearms laws. They provide a very target-rich environment. Alan, thanks very much. That's Alan Gottlieb, founder of the Second Amendment Foundation. To your calls now, let's go to uh, Bill in Tennessee. Hey, Bill, thanks for listening on KYM, and give my regards to Todd Starnes. What's on your mind today? 
Absolutely. I'll, I'll probably try to call into his show tomorrow. I do that <laughs> frequently. Um, I was listening to that lady that, quote, unquote, couldn't disagree with you more and didn't know where to start. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. She just didn't have a clue, I'm going to tell you. I watched that entire event. I, I worked from home, had the TV on all day. That scene at the White House, at the Capitol building, started with SUVs lined up across the courtyard of the mall of the Capitol building and, and guards yep. standing on the steps. Yep. In a few minutes, those vans were gone. The guards were gone. The people were crossing the rails, and the guards were literally holding the doors open. Yep, they were. I watched and, this happen. And, and you know what happened, Bill. This was a setup from the beginning. Because Nancy Pelosi, and I wish the Republican could grow a backbone or something uh, to ask these questions. Nancy, I mean, three days after J6, I remember the FBI came out and held a press conference. They said, we knew trouble was coming on January 6th. We knew it days ahead, and we told the Capitol Police. Well, who runs Capitol Police? Nancy Pelosi. Who told the Capitol Police to maintain regular order, no extra gear, no people called back from, you know, vacation, no extra barricades, no nothing? In other words, they were worried about optics. Well, not only that, she wanted an incident and she thought, if we just stand Mm -hmm. back, there will be an incident. And then I can use it for what she dearly wanted, which was a second impeachment of Donald Trump. Not just that, but an unconstitutional second impeachment. Because they knew they wouldn't, exactly. they would be able to impeach him, but they wouldn't be able to hold the trial while he was still a federal official. And and you can't impeach anybody who's not a federal official. It was so unconstitutional right. that even the chief justice said, "I'm not taking part in it," even though the Constitution specifically says that the chief justice of the Supreme Court will be the person who oversees the trial. He said, "I'm not doing it." I won't take part in it. No, there are so many things wrong with that. Nancy Pelosi got what she wanted by allowing that incident to happen that way. And all those federal agents in the crowd, they were the people who egged everybody else on. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Talk to Lars? 866 Hey Lars. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. We were recently wor- warned by a bunch of celebrities and scientists about the downsides of AI, but should we be as concerned as we are? I got to tell something. Uh, our friend, Dr. Henry Miller, who's a doctor, molecular biologist, he's also at the American Council on Science and Health as the Glenn Swagger Distinguished Fellow there, founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. Dr. Miller, I'm of two minds about artificial intelligence, AI. One is that I can see the dramatic uh, effects that it could have, the good stuff that goes with it. But like most tools, the good side of the tool also has a bad side. Uh, guns uh, are that way. Knives are that way. Computers and cell phones are that way. Almost everything that has a positive benefit also has some really big potential negatives. How do we add those up? 
Well, it, it's very tough, as you intimate, uh, Lars. I'll tell you, one of the benefits of this, I think, is going to be is something in your line of work. I don't know whether you've noticed, but a lot of the writing for news reports on TV is really pretty bad. It uh, is. Ungr- ungrammatical, uninteresting, awkward, and so on. And frankly, the chatbots, the artificial intelligence programs that that can write stories and write accounts can do better than this because they know uh, what the rules of grammar and syntax are. So that's one thing. And there will be all sorts of applications uh, of uh, artificial intelligence. But the negative side, the potential is huge. So you have the potential for deep fakes that really redefine reality for millions or hundreds of millions of people. And we saw it within the past few weeks when a very talented AI guy named Elliot Higgins did deep fakes of Donald Trump being arrested before he was arrested. And it, it shows the cops chasing Trump down the street. It shows him falling as he's apprehended. It shows him very realistically uh, selecting an orange jumpsuit from uh, Iraq. And uh, this is the kind of thing that's going to bedevil us, I think, as we get close to elections. And these things are going to begin to appear either anonymously or from obviously partisan sources, and we won't know what's real and what isn't. Well, I agree with you, because I actually had a few weeks ago uh, a newsman I know, a radio news guy, sent me a, a copy of a story he had written and voiced. It was his voice on the report. And then he sent me, with that same file, a file of the chat, uh, the, the you know chat GPT version of it with his voice except done by an artificial intelligence, and they were virtually indistinguishable. And if you think about how the criminals might use this, you know, we, we, we already have people who are fooled into giving up their money, uh, you know, their bank accounts and things like that by humans on the phone. Can you imagine what an AI might be able to do if it could mimic, say, your boss's voice or your son or daughter's voice and, and fool you on the phone into giving up information that would be of financial benefit to the criminal? It's going to happen. But is there any way to let the good part of the genie out of the bottle and keep the rest of him under the cork? I honestly don't know how to do that. Uh, and uh, I, I, I see more and more people experimenting with this. Uh, I, I have friends, scientist friends, who have carried on scientific dialogues dialogues with uh, these chatbots, and they often score pretty well uh, in, in chemistry and physics, at least. Um, but uh, th- there are some aspects of it, that, again, that are, that are very uh, worrisome or dodgy. Uh, such as you can you can get the uh, the chatbot to back off some of its more definitive uh, um, authoritative statements, but uh, but then it doesn't it doesn't uh, incorporate that into its memory and its repertoire, and then it goes back to uh, its own biases uh, after you're finished with your conversation. Well, so see, I, I don't know. I don't know what you do about this. No, I don't either. And I worry because I, the first use I can see of various entities putting it to is saying, "Let's go online and let's sift out anything we determine to be misinformation or subtly directed away." Except it all falls to 
what do you define as misinformation? And we've had a lot of experience with that in the last three years in the pandemic uh, about how do you decide what is true and what's false and what's misinformation. Although, Dr. After we planned our talk today, I happened to see an article late this afternoon, and what it had—I think it was one of the major networks—was reporting there's a medical group that says that if we let an AI, a properly situated AI, look at uh, at images from people's chests uh, of their lungs, uh, that it can spot signs of lung cancer perhaps years earlier that it might be spotted by a human radiologist. And I thought, well, that's probably exactly the kind of thing that we'd love to see it do, you know, where the AI can look at unusual patterns of cell growth or changes that would not be spotted by a human being with his eyes and his brain, but might be spotted by an AI if it was it was in the right spot, in, if it was able to look at those images, the same images, but have the cancer spotted a lot earlier. Oh, absolutely, Lars. And uh, there's another example similar to that that uh, I'm writing about in, in a different context, and that's when uh, in uh, elderly men, if a, um, uh, a prostate cancer is detected, uh, there's a real argument to be made for uh, just what's called careful observation instead of treating it very aggressively because the, like the slow-growing slow prostate cancers cause very low mortality. Uh, and so the, uh, a, a chatbot program, an AI program, can, can give you the probabilities and suggest the, the uh, correct course of, of therapy or, or watching based on what's in the scientific literature. And you're, you're absolutely right about uh, the ability of the programs, the AI programs, to read x-rays, chest x-rays in particular. They're very good at it, and they actually slightly outperform experienced radiologists. The only concern uh, I, I guess a lot of people might have is saying, do I then trust to the AI the ability to diagnose? And even if you say, well, it's only one tool that your doctor is using, if your doctor puts the images into the AI program and says, what do you see? And the AI program says, hey, I think there's a cancer growing in there. If the treatments are relatively, you know, uh, not benign, but if they're if they're relatively not aggressive, as you, you talked about the aggressive treatment of prostate cancer, if you say, well, looks like you may be developing a lung cancer there. We can address it this way. But what happens when the you know, what happens when the A.I. says, well, we should take this prostate cancer and cut it out right away. And then it turns out that, that it was wrong or that it was too aggressive. How do you how do you guard against that? Well, what what you need to do is to do a clinical study uh, early on, as people are doing with the ability of uh, AI versus radiologists to read chest films. You compare them and see uh, who who does better and whose uh, version you accept early on. But but for prostate cancer, the or or lung cancer in particular. The advantage would be that the uh, program, the AI program, can take into consideration all sorts of other things uh, and and uh, integrate the scientific literature, the medical literature, into a plan or a suggested plan. How old is the patient? Does it does the patient have other underlying morbidities that make an operation? Uh, less desirable than, say, chemotherapy or radiation therapy, uh, and so on and so on. 
to to optimize it. it. These things become a judgment call in many situations, and an expert, quote unquote, an AI expert who has access immediately to the entire medical literature can give you guidance. Now, the problem is that when the AI program, which has access to infinite numbers of papers on the Internet, is taking advice from this Church of Scientology (laughs) website instead of NIH. That's, That's going to be the problem. Dr. Miller, thank you very much. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. All men and the people who love. Stream the Lars Larson Show live at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails, and I'll get back to those in just a moment. Like a lot of Americans, I think, I've had it up, up to here with China threatening Taiwan. I've had it up to here with China supplying a lot of our consumer goods, taking our jobs, and then threatening the United States. I've had it up to here with China saying, We're going to remake your uh, pop culture. What are they going to be doing in 10 or 20 years? So if there were a way to sort of stop relying on China as much and maybe send our business to people that are a little bit more American friendly, I'd be entirely behind it. Now, John Schweppe has joined me now, the director of policy and government affairs at the American Principles Project, who's also written about this for Spectator. John, welcome back. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Lars. I know that uh, a friend of mine uh, told me often that uh, everything is easy as long as you don't have to do it. So when you say, well, let's just stop relying on China and so much and take our business elsewhere, sounds easy. I'm sure that some of the people who have to do business with China or feel forced by circumstances to do it say, yeah, easier said than done. But are there some ways we can start moving in that direction and maybe send a message to the chai comms that we don't like their behavior and we don't much want to do business with people who behave the way they do? Yeah, well, I think we're going to have to, right? Because otherwise, what's going to happen is that China is going to win out and they're going to have global dominance and we're going to be subservient to whatever they want. And uh, so in this piece I wrote for for Spectator, I made an analogy to hard drugs, and I think it's a pretty, you know, accurate one. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Dennis Quaid famously said that his involvement with cocaine had three stages, the fun, the fun with problems, and then just the problems. And that's happened with China. You know, when we opened up to China in the 90s, granted them most favored nation status, the selling point to Americans was this is going to be great for American businesses. We're going to create jobs. We're going to, you know, improve our standard of living. And we were told that we would essentially outsource our values, our democratic values to China. That's not what's happened. And now because China has become so powerful, because that market has become so enticing to American corporations, the opposite is happening, where you have Disney censoring American values out of their films, uh, where you have video game companies like Activision uh, actively censoring to placate the CCP. And so 
Um, you know, it goes beyond censorship. I mean, this is something we should be very worried about. And really, I think Americans need to recognize that we're in a second Cold War here. Um, you know, it, it, this is very similar to what we dealt with with the Soviet Union, except I think actually uh, China may ultimately prove to be a, a more potent threat. Yeah, I think you're right about that, because the theory all the way back to Nixon opening things up with China was if we let them become part of the community of nations, why they'll start behaving like a good, solid member of that community. And instead, what we got was a much more uh, wealthy, much more, uh, you know, uh, productive, I guess, in one sense, making a lot of money on us, uh, a country that behaved just as badly as they always had, only they had more resources courtesy of us. Right. Unlike the Soviet Union, I think the Chinese have figured out how to exploit various aspects of, of capitalism to enrich themselves and solidify their power. And so we're in a situation where, you know, obviously we, we're dealing with historic inflation right now. Uh, supply chains are obviously contributing to that. And it's part of the problem is that uh, we have American corporations who are convinced that, well, we have to manufacture all these parts in China. We have to manufacture prescription medications in China. And of course, you know, when China has that kind of leverage over us, they can do a lot of really bad things. And so, you know, I think what, what we need to be worried about is with the kerfuffle over Nancy Pelosi going to, to Taiwan, you know, the reason that's such a concern here is because China has huge power, enormous power over us. And I think that's something we need to be focused on as a national policy. And if Democrats don't do it, then Republicans certainly need to. Uh, but we need to be separating ourselves from China and competing with them and making sure that we you know, don't lose uh, our global economic dominance to them. I guess, and that one really bothered me. I've got, I've got a tie to Taiwan. I was born there, but, and I've always liked the country and I like their attitudes. I like their freedom. But the idea that when a, a U.S. official wants to go visit one of our allies, Taiwan, and China feels that it can get away with saying, if you do that, we may just attack the country. We, we might even shoot down the plane with Nancy Pelosi on it. Americans, I thought, would be more outraged than I, than I guess I read in their reaction to it. Yeah, I'm never going to be one to defend Nancy Pelosi, but here was a no rare lie. circumstance where I felt that, you know, we should have been much stronger in defending her decision to go there because she's an American and, and, and that's her right. And, you know, this administration didn't even stand by her. They were playing, you know, very fast and loose with their words, trying not to upset China. And I think that's just crazy. And look, I understand that it's like, you know, going back to the drugs analogy, uh, we're in a position where we it's really difficult to get off it, and I understand that, but we are not going to succeed if, unless we do. So I'm talking to John Schweppe from the American Principles Project, but is it really, John? I mean, if an American company said, look, we have screws or circuits or something that are made in China now, let's look for some other suppliers. And most smart companies, they don't put all their eggs in one basket. I remember talking to a guy from one of the, I think it was Anheuser-Busch, and I said, do you buy much in the way of hops from America? And he says, no. He says they're cheaper and they're greater quantity buying them from South America. I said, then why do you buy any here? He says, we want to keep all these other guys operating because, you know, we want to have alternative supplies. We'd be foolish to buy all of our anything from one place or one company or one country. And I would think that American companies would want to insulate themselves, not just from Chinese machinations, but also from China, you know, from supply chain issues saying, well, you know, we make a third of our stuff in China. And then we make a third of it in Malaysia and a third of it in Taiwan. And we spread our, you know, spread our risk around as well. Isn't that in the best interest of big companies? 
In the long term, certainly. But, you know, the allure of short-term profits is always pretty compelling. And the other thing a lot of these companies are considering is that they want access to Chinese markets. And the CCP is very aggressive in terms of if you want access to our markets, you have to invest here, you have to manufacture here, you have to do all of this. And so that's why you see companies like Apple so in bed with China um, to where they actually took off of uh, the iPhone made in California because they've become effectively a Chinese company in order to have access to that enormous market. You know, John, the the change I'd like to see, and I think it would be a relatively easy one, but tell me if, if I've got any of this wrong. Over the last couple of years, this one just blew me away. If you're an American company and you want to set, you want to have your stocks traded on the American markets, you have certain disclosure requirements. You got to tell the public your quarterlies. You got to tell them all this information about your company. Any foreign company that wants to be on American stock markets has to make similar disclosures. The one country on planet Earth, and I think this happened during Obama, they said, Oh, China, you don't have to make any of those disclosures. So when people buy Chinese stocks in companies, uh, you don't know about them what you would know about Boeing or Caterpillar or Microsoft or Apple. You, you, it's kind of basically a big, dark, black hole. And, and you say, well, the stock appears to be going up and I'm buying it. Well, do you know anything about what's behind the company? No. Why would we give them that kind of access and why don't we rescind that right now? Say you want to do business in our markets, you do the same disclosures everybody else does. Well, I think, I think that's a brilliant idea and we should definitely pursue it. But, you know, ultimately... This is just what it's going to take. Unfortunately, we had a view, and it, and it was a long-lasting foreign policy view, that uh, you know economics would save us our relationship with China and by granting them all sorts of these privileges that it would be great. That has not panned out, and I think that's clear now, especially, especially after COVID-19. And so I think, obviously, now the next president, because uh, I, I actually don't think Joe Biden is going to run for a second term, so whoever it is, Republican or <laughs> yeah, Democrat, uh, this has to be a priority for them. And I don't think the American, I think the American people understand this. I don't think they're going to vote for somebody who isn't tough on China and serious about cracking down. So that's going to have to be a major issue for both parties going forward. Absolutely. That's John Schweppe with the American Principles Project. Your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. Naysayers go first at 866-439-5277. You've got the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. men will bow down before the throne and at his feet they'll cast their golden crowns when the man comes around this is the Lars Larson show you're listening to the best of the Lars Larson show welcome back to the Lars Larson show it's a pleasure to be with you and I want to get some of your calls especially because we got naysayers on the line but first Welcome to the program. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every single day. And, of course, 866-HEY-LARS is the number. If you happen to be a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And our Twitter poll, should journalists ever agree to embed with terrorists to get pictures of the slaughter firsthand? 
My answer to that, of course, is no. And if you wonder, Lawrence, it sounds like a crazy question. When did that ever happen? Well, it happened on October the 7th when reporters and photojournalists who are working for the New York Times, for Reuters, for Associated Press are reported to have been embedded with Hamas terrorists when they carried out the slaughter that happened in Israel on October the 7th. So should a journalist ever agree? Yeah, I'd like to go along. I want to watch firsthand as you rape people and shoot people and cut their heads off and put babies in ovens. Yeah, I'd like to be there so I can watch it and take really great pictures for my news organization. The fact that AP, Reuters, CNN, and the New York Times had people who did that is absolutely unconscionable in my book. In any case, you can find the Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show. And let me go first to a naysayer, and that'd be Greg. Hey, Greg, welcome to the program. What's on your mind, and where do you and I disagree that makes you a naysayer? How you doing, Lars? Uh, well, I'm in Tacoma, Washington here, um, and I rarely disagree with you, so it's a, it's a rare opportunity today. Um, okay. So y- you spoke to another caller a few moments ago regarding free speech, and your belief was that, for example, uh, yelling bomb in a, in a public uh, place or something like that, Correct. Uh, the, the famous phrase comes from a judge who said, you can, if you shout fire in a crowded theater and set off a stampede and people are hurt or killed, that if you show up then charged with causing the stampede that hurt those people, and you say to the judge, Your Honor, the First Amendment says I can say anything I want anywhere I want, he's going to carefully explain to you time, place, and manner mean you can't. Okay, so that's a much, much better descriptor than I heard prior because... My my against you, you know, deal would be that free speech has to be absolute because, like, the Second Amendment no, it is a slippery slope, and it's still, it, it doesn't well, though because time. No, it, the, the Supreme Court has always said the Supreme Court, Greg. Let me explain. Has always said that every one of the Bill of Rights, in fact, all of the constitutional rights, are subject to time, place, and manner restrictions. Meaning that if you were to say the Second Amendment is absolute. There could be no gun laws, not one, none, no limitations. Felons could have guns. If you say all free speech is, is, is legitimate and the Constitution says the government may not interfere with that, you could never have top-secret documents because anybody who saw one would be able to talk about one anywhere they wanted. It, you would be able to go out uh, to a, a crowded place and shout, Allahu Akbar, I've got a bomb, and cause a stampede. And when they hauled you in on charges of, uh, of, of malicious mischief, disorderly conduct, uh, uh, or, or negligent homicide, you would simply say, Your Honor, First Amendment, I can say anything I want, anywhere I want. Greg, I've, led, I've read ton. I'm not a lawyer, but I've read tons of court decisions where the courts have said, a time, place, and manner restriction is on all of the constitutional rights. Otherwise, Greg, are you familiar with the, the criminal charge uh, disorderly or, yeah, it's, it's a minor crime, but disorderly conduct? That's what I was going to bring up is that I think it is where you're going with that. It is absolutely appropriate to charge somebody. You know, if I claim it's my freedom of speech and I yell bomb, I think it's dead wrong to say you can't say that, Greg. However, if you additionally said, all right, well, you said that. However, you're saying that your time and place caused a, you incited a riot or you caused disorderly conduct. That would be fine, but that is a separate deal. Well, well, hold on. No, it's not. Hey, Greg, let me tell you why it's not. If your First Amendment right to say things is absolute, there could never be a charge called disorderly conduct that you could violate by the things that you say. There could never be a charge of inciting to riot. A guy named Al Sharpton incited a riot at one point in New York City. 
It caused a lot of damage. Some people died. But all he said was words. They're not saying he swung his fist. They're not saying he lit any gas on fire. They're just saying he said words. There could be no crime called incitement to riot or disorderly conduct with, you know, with the things you say, because the First Amendment, if absolute, would say there can never be a crime of incitement to riot. Agreed? I would agree on that, but I think along with that, then, we we would have to say um, maybe not even freedom of speech, even a loud sound effect. In in other words, uh, let's let's pretend I made a gunshot-like sound in a public place and it created an issue. And it panicked. I would fall under that exact same category, right? And that would fall because you could say I was engaging in performance art. So I I use something, not an explosive, because that could be a separate crime. But if you said, I have a device that makes a sound just like a gunshot or like multiple gunshots, and I decided to make that sound and I was doing it as performance art, and you set off a stampede, you cannot defend your actions under the First Amendment because you can't say, Your Honor, I'm allowed to make any sound I want because I'm involved in expression, which which is protected by the First Amendment. And the judge would then say, if your expression was done and there is a time, place and manner restriction on it, meaning the way you do it, when you do it, where you do it and how you do it have caused people to be hurt. So, yes, you violated the law and you can't defend yourself okay. with this for, with the first. You could try, but you're going to lose. I, I would mostly have been with you on, on on most of those examples and their circumstances. But I believe already we are leaning a little too far against it. And take it for example. Well, give me a good example where somebody does something perfectly reasonable and it's covered by the First Amendment, but you're suggesting that I'm taking it too far. Wrong, give me a wrongfully good example. charged Trump. What's inciting January 6th. I agree. And in fact, we've Target. argued that, which is why do you notice that of the charges, they charged a few people with insurrection do you know the key person they never charged with insurrection that would be donald john trump why because they knew they were going to lose because all he did was give a speech i've read it i've seen it i've listened to it i've carefully looked at every word he said none of what he said was inciting to riot. none of what he said was insurrectionist in fact he said let's go he didn't say let's go up and take the capital by by force instead he said let's go up and tell the Congress that we want them to count the votes legitimately. In other words, he was he was in reinforcing the idea. This is the system. We just want the votes counted right. Okay, I I think that's totally fair. I would agree. I my concern is that it gets used in exactly that kind of way against. We it all, will be, and what will happen is the system will shoot them down metaphorically. Of course, I mean I know I mean, but I that's what so. happens every time we see somebody who says something reasonable. And then some knucklehead prosecutor elected with the help of George Soros says, I'm going to charge you with a crime for saying those words. Say, bring it on, buddy. Let's go to court and let's have you tell a judge that I said perfectly. Let's go up on the to the Capitol peacefully and patriotically and tell the Congress what we're thinking. And you tell me how that is not the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.